and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is October the 27th, 2022, a Thursday. Um, we do a lot of shows about American history, contemporary American history, and there are certain characters like Forrest Gump or Zelig who seem to show up everywhere. They're ubiquitous. We're going to be talking about one of those characters today. Yesterday, I did a show with Cody Keenan, who was uh, Barack Obama's major speechwriter. He has a new book out called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. And before Keenan worked for Obama, he worked for Teddy Kennedy or Ted Kennedy in, in the mailroom. He learned and his politics in part from Kennedy. And we talked a little bit about it. Kennedy seems everywhere and ubiquitous in lots of different ways. Uh, I did a show a couple of weeks ago with a four-time Florida uh, House of Representatives uh, politician, uh, Rick Keller. Uh, he has a new book out, Chase the Bears, Little Things to Achieve Big Dreams. And Keller boasts of his own sense of humor and ability to cross the political aisle. And he boasts in particular of his achievements in passing an education policy bill under the first or under the second uh, Bush presidency. And he boasts of this particular photograph of people uh, watching of uh, Bush and, of course, the ubiquitous Ted Kennedy. <laughs> Meanwhile, did a show last week on abortion with a very activist journalist from the South, Becca Andrews, has a new book out, No Choice. And, Tennedy, and Ted, Ted Kennedy popped up on that one, too. Uh, as a new piece in the New York Times suggesting that uh, Judge Alito assured Ted Kennedy in 2005 of his respect for Roe versus Wade. That piece was actually written by my guest today, John A. Farrell, who's also the author of a major new biography, Ted Kennedy, A Life. And he's joining us from Boston. He's about to do an event at UMass Boston, uh, at the uh, Kennedy uh, Library in Boston uh, to celebrate his book and the life of, um, of Ted Kennedy. John, um, is there, is it just in my imagination, my paranoia is Ted Kennedy everywhere? Did you find him everywhere in the last 50 or 60 years of American history? Well, certainly because of the great command that his brothers had on the public imagination. Um, he goes all the way back into the 1950s, an active role in American politics. And in his time as a United States Senator, aside from the family connection, um, he's the fourth longest serving Senator in American history and had this amazing ability um, because of his personal qualities and also uh, by exploiting his, his family uh, charisma and name of reaching across the aisle and working with Republicans on so many different issues that sort of stunned in today's current political climate. But he worked with Ronald Reagan on arms control. He worked with Richard Nixon on health care. He worked with um, uh, 
uh, Orrin Hatch. He worked with John McCain. He worked with Sam Brownback, Howard Baker, Lindsey Graham, Phil Graham, Trent Lott. The list is um, uh, on and on and on. And uh, they would make these deals. They would. Uh, he and Orrin Hatch would sit down and they would say, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna agree that we're gonna push this bill. We've tailored it so that you we both can live with it, and we will accept no attack from the far left or the far right. We will defend the center." And that's how these, these bills were um, uh, enacted. Um, interestingly enough, he's been uh, dead now for 13 years. You see a, a, an erosion in many of these uh, bills. In 1976, um, Ted Kennedy worked with minority Republican leader Hugh Scott and passed a campaign finance bill that on the front page of the New York Times proclaimed was going to end the influence of special interests and the moneyed interests in American politics. Well, you can see how the different Supreme Court decisions have eroded that. In 1981, he worked with Ronald Reagan and Bob Dole, and they passed a 25-year extension of the Voting Rights Act. And again, without Ted Kennedy there in the, in the Senate being that, um, that guardian, you see voting rights um, all across America um, eroding. So it's, we, we miss him by both his, his presence and his absence. We've done a number of shows, uh, John, about the future of the Democratic Party. Obviously, there's a future of the Republicans, too, which Ted Kennedy wouldn't show up in. One with the editor of the, of the New Republic, Michael Tomaski, is on the left. He embraces Joe Biden. Michael Kazin has a new book out about the history of the Democratic Party, trying to get back to its roots. Uh, William Galston, who's a democratic centrist, was rather ambivalent with the left drift in his mind of Biden's Democratic Party. Where do you think Kennedy would be if he was around today? He's always been associated on the left of the party. And yet, as you suggest, his great achievement was in a, a kind of legislative centrism. Yes, and, and, and he never hit it. All the way, you go all the way back to 19, I think it was 70, 1970. He went to Ireland and he gave the Edmund Burke address at Trinity College uh, in Dublin. And it was sort of a, a statement of philosophy. And he said, a career, a lifelong of small progressive change and reform is worth more than um, a, a radical change that fails. And so that was always his philosophy. He always had the long game um, in, in mind. I think what happened is that the party changed uh, underneath him more than that he changed. Um, the old urban Democrats became Reagan Democrats or Nixon's silent majority um, in, in a large part due to race, but also because they, in large part due to the Republican exploitation of the issue of race, but, but also because they were um, uh, they were successful because Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal had been so successful. They put money in their pockets and allowed them to get out and move out into the suburb and become conservatives. The, the, the New York Jimmy Breslin always called them shopping center uh, Irish after uh, um, his relatives moved out out on Long Island and, and, and had a more um, a prosperous and conservative outlook on life. And uh, then you had the Republican Party so effectively using the financial resources from the finance committee uh, community um, to affect American politics and the Democrats feeling in order to match Reagan and, um, and, uh, and battle the conservative era, 
they had to go to Wall Street for money too. And so, so they sold a little bit of their uh, soul on that. And, and gradually, uh, Bill Clinton came in and announced that the era of big government is over. So gradually, the, the Democratic Party, in, in an attempt to keep its big umbrella, to keep the big tent, um, uh, moderated its views in ways that I'm, I'm sure that um, Ted Kennedy did, did, did not embrace. And the 1994 Gingrich Revolution, he was the, the voice in the party who, who who went to the White House and argued with Bill Clinton and then gave the stirring speech saying, the country does not need two Republican parties. So um, he was a very good friend of, of Joe Biden um, through the years, I'm sure. Uh, at the age of 90, he would have been a steadfast supporter of Biden um, if he was alive today. But uh, um, you know, on, on the whole, he would not have been very happy with where things stand, and especially in his beloved Senate, where you have uh, a bunch of puppets uh, paralyzed by uh, their fears about what the donors and the base will think of them if they don't march in, in lockstep. I want to come back to Ted Kennedy's soul, if there was one. But I also want to talk about him as a speechmaker. You mentioned him giving, of all things, the Edmund Burke speech in Dublin. Uh, I'm not sure how Burkean uh, Kennedy was. His perhaps most famous for his dream shall never die speech in the 1980 Democratic National Convention. He also made a very famous speech at the after the funeral of his of his brother, his middle brother. Um, coming back to Keenan, who was a speechwriter and learned some of his skills, I guess, working for Kennedy and then uh, worked for Barack Obama as one of the great um, orators in American presidential history. How good um, a performer was, was Kennedy? Was he in the, the same class as Obama or perhaps Ken uh, Kennedy's two brothers? Um a, um, an element of self-doubt and some, some would say self-destruction in Ted Kennedy's personality brought on by the fact, as he put it, that he could never limitations of his family or to the example set by, um, by, his, by his brothers. And so in private conversations, there were times when he was almost um, um, you know, extremely difficult to under, uh, understand at all. And then he had a famous Doonesbury column when uh, cartoon strip when uh, Kennedy ran for uh, president of the press shouting out to him saying, a verb, Kennedy, a verb, please give us a verb. So, so he could be inarticulate in personal conversations, but he had this great ability um, to attract um, spectacular staff. And as he accumulated seniority and more and more staff in the Senate, they almost formed this uh, little uh, uh, army that uh, stood stood off by itself from the the other power bases in the Senate in the city of Washington, and uh, because they were so talented, because they were all inspired by the Kennedy um, myth and and charisma, uh, carried more weight than than other Senate uh, staffs, and uh, among them were um, very excellent speechwriters like. Like uh, Robert uh, Shrum, for example, who wrote the um, uh, "The Dream Shall Never Die" speech, and uh, what Ted was good at was rehearsal and delivery, and um, that 
that evoked memories of of his of his brothers. You put that package together, and it could be a very um, potent political weapon. The book describes him in part as the runt of the litter, especially, well, it's hard not to be the runt of the litter if your two brothers are Bobby Kennedy and uh, JFK. Um, Trump famously used to talk about Fredo from The Godfather as the runt of the litter and suggest, I think it was uh, CNN's Cuomo, that he was the Fredo. Was there something Fredo-like about Ted Kennedy, do you think, or would that be very unfair? I, I, I remember the movie, and, and as far as, I, I think, though, that Michael was the youngest brother. Um, yeah, Michael was so, the youngest. And that, that was the other thing that pissed Fredo off. Was, was, remember, he, he used to say, well, you, you're, you're, you're younger than me, and you have more power than me, and Dad used to prefer you to right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that they're most. I mean, this is a guy who, as he was growing up, was jokes in the family um, as 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 the little chubby kid, um, and uh, his brothers would tease him. All the correspondence, his childhood, there everybody's always talking about how fat little Teddy is, and the brothers are are are, are titans and giants and and he he looks at them and he says to himself i can i can never be that that good um his son patrick wrote something once which i thought cheered ted completely and, and what he said was that ted kennedy was a marvelous human being very empathetic loved people loved a good time had that terrific um personality and was willing to work hard very hard um, to help other people, um, but always felt that he could never fill the expectations uh, as the brother of John and Robert and the son of, of, of Joseph Kennedy, um, and so spent his whole life in this sort of vain pursuit. When the assassinations happened, those two brothers were frozen in, in time, young and handsome, uh, mythic you know, qualities, they, you know, they sang songs about them, you know, they, they saved a lot of people, but it seems the good they die young. So they never got a chance to, to, um, to have to live with the flaws of, 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 uh, of a more, uh, revealed by a more aggressive press corps um, after their deaths, the way that Ted did, they never had to have their personal vulnerabilities exposed the way it happened uh, with Ted, but he, but he did. And, and I think that that argument that there was an element of self destruction to him um, is true. I think that um, he revered his brothers. Um, his life was, a, was dedicated to bringing about their, fulfilling their legacy. And yet whenever the presidency actually came close to him, he seemed to perform the worst or to have a crisis like the Chappaquiddick accident, which um, uh, absolved him from the uh, the responsibility of actually being president, of actually so having to uh, up. Yep. So are you suggesting, John, that, I mean, obviously Chappaquiddick was a tragic accident, but are you suggesting that that self-destructive quality came out most um, manifestly when it came to the idea of Ted Kennedy running for president? Not running for president, because he, he did run for president, but um, at the, the idea that 
and it wasn't just being the American president and taking on the burdens of the office, so that was certainly a lot, but it was also just that he was supposed to perform as Jack, and Jack was like a, a, a divine being to, to Ted. And, uh, and, and the expectations of, of Americans at that time for a new Kennedy and this new glorious, the restoration, this glorious uh, return to Camelot uh, were huge. And I think it's, a, I think the year before he shows definite signs that he's cracking up under the strain. And then he gets his act back together again and he decides he's gonna run for president. And in 1979, he invites, um, uh, or his staff invites Roger Mudd, the CBS newsman to interview him before uh, the 1980 campaign. And the interview was a complete stir. And uh, he's asked a, ball, uh, a softball question, like, why do you wanna be president? And he can't answer it. And, um, and he's, he's, he's stammering and he's saying, uh, 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 uh. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disastrous interview and it immediately leads to close friends like his college roommate, John Tunney and fellow senators saying, uh, and columnists like Anthony Lewis and Ellen Goodman writing, oh my God, you know, he doesn't want it. He, he fears it. And this was another one of those self-destructive moments where, you know, the, the better, closer that Ted Kennedy got to the prize, the worse he performed. And the more that he retreated from it, the better he was. So that the dream can never die speech was given after he had been defeated. And the Roger Mudd uh, interview happens when it looks like he's the um, odds on favorite favorite to become the next president. I wonder what a psychologist or therapist would make of that. I, I'm curious as to your take on, on the relationship with his father. Uh, Joe Kennedy was a notoriously hard man. Um, I assume a very, very tough father, not quite as tough perhaps as Fred Trump, who seems to have ruined all the men in his family, particularly Donald Trump. But I wonder what the impact of a man like Joe Kennedy was on, on Teddy? Well, again, the, the expectations were, were murder. The, the, the letters written by his parents and wrote perhaps even stern. Yeah. Um, and the letters written by his parents to the, to the uh, um, head, different headmasters. Well, first of all, they, they, they tried to ship him out to boarding schools when he was seven because he was the youngest and they were tired of, of, of having raising so that's a, sort of an upper class um, East Coast thing. There's nothing particularly unusual about that, is it? Seven? Seven? Boarding school? I, I don't know. That, that, that to me is, um, is extreme. Um, and, and, and it's not just that one act. I mean, the, 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 the record is filled with, I mean, after uh, um, Jacqueline Kennedy, after her husband's death, has had a famous interview with uh, Theodore, in which she uh, talks about how JFK Kay liked to put on the record Camelot every night and listen to it before he went to bed. And that, that triggers this uh, Arthurian uh, myth about uh, Camelot right. and, and the Kennedys. But also in that same interview, and it was, it was um, uh, kept 40 or 50 years, um, Jackie says, you know, you know his, his mother never loved Jack. Uh, she was really happy going around the world being the wife of the ambassador or the daughter of the mayor of Austin, but she never loved him. And, and then she stops and she says it again repeating it for emphasis with no with no slip of the tongue she never loved him so it, it was a it was a um a, a cold family um relationship uh, uh relationship beyond the 
effervescence of the touch football games and the, um, uh, the relations, the wonderful relations that the, that the, the brothers and sisters had among themselves. But th through all that, um, uh, Ted Kennedy admired his father and respected his father. And um, the, 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 the great painting that was hung in the front hall of his house was of uh, Joseph Kennedy. Your book, um, wonderful book, by the way, uh, John is Ted Kennedy Alive. As I joked to you before we went live, whenever there's a biography and the word life is included, it, I usually smirk at it. But when it comes to Kennedy, it was indeed a life, a remarkable life. I mean, if anyone led a 20th century life, it was Ted Kennedy, wasn't it? It was. And there's lots of like interesting uh, bits in, in, in the book. One of my favorites, um, you, you think of Ted Kennedy as, as the great uh, liberal and, uh, and definitely he was a, a force of resistance during the Reagan presidency. But as soon as Reagan decided that he wanted to try to uh, reach some sort of arms co control agreement with the Soviets, Ted Kennedy acted as a, as a silent go-between. He was a, a signal between the White House um, and the Kremlin. Um, little things like that pop up that, uh, that sort of take, take your breath away um, when you, when you uh, consider it. There's um, uh, his uh, work with Hatch uh, against Jesse Helms. I mean, that's an amazing uh, duo taking on this arch conservative uh, in the Senate. And sometimes Helms wins because he scares all the senators into thinking that they can't um, uh, do anything for AIDS victims because AIDS victims are either um, drug users or, or gay. But uh, Kennedy and, and Hatch put together this this, uh, uh, this team and they go into battle and uh, and they win. So there are uh, stirring uh, little uh, stories of, of Ted's life that have either forgotten or not gotten. And I think um, over the years, and I was I was very happy to to delve into that. So much legislation he was behind. You mentioned the aid stuff, civil rights, uh, mental health, education. We mentioned education at the beginning in terms of that photograph with uh, with Bush and and Keller. Is there one issue, John, throughout Ken Ted Kennedy's life that you think, on his deathbed, perhaps he thought? That's what I'm most proud of. That's what I achieved. That's my abiding legacy. Well, we can go past his deathbed. When he was dying, he wrote a letter to uh, Barack Obama. And in the letter, he says, Mr. President, I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to see it happen. Um, but we've gotten the Affordable Care Act through my committee. It's headed for the Senate floor. Don't waste the moment. Um, I'm not going to be at your side to see it happen, but I'm you know, I know it's going to happen. I have confidence and I have faith in you um, that this, which he then writes and says, is the cause of my life to bring uh, health care uh, 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 as a right rather than a, um, a benefit to the American people um, uh, is going to finally be achieved. And there's a famous story, perhaps you, you talked about it last week, uh, where uh, Obama, after he signs the Affordable Care Act, um, goes up to the uh, uh, White House private quarters, and he's sitting there, and he's mulling over what has happened today. And he said, and "I thought of, I thought of two people. I thought of my mom who had died of breast cancer, and I thought of Ted Kennedy." So he, he had an amazing influence on that debate in the in the Republican years in the conservative era. Um, he kept the flame alive. Um, he always wished that he had cut a deal that was offered to him by Richard Nixon back in in 1974. He told me before he died that that was the 
uh, worst tactical mistake he had ever made. But uh, that was the biggie. What did um, Nixon offer him? A, 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 a deal very much like what the Affordable Care Act was, which was private insurance supplemented by um, a federal guarantee and, um, and federal subsidies. What about, um, we've talked about his legislative uh, achievements, his family life, his politics. There is, of course, a, a much darker side, most associated with Chappaquiddick, your book, um, your book has some some new information on that. What do you reveal in your book about the darker side of Kennedy's life? Uh, one of the the headlines, um, I think, the LA Times review suggests that um, about your biography that Ted Kennedy turns out to be both better and worse than we all thought. What about the dark side? What did you reveal in the book that should disturb us? Well. One thing I did when I was um, doing the research was I went and went through Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s uh, diary, and that's at the New York Public Library. And he was an advisor to John, and he was a close friend and advisor to Robert Kennedy and a, a friendly advisor to Ted Kennedy as well, um, and was a very good friend of, of Jean Kennedy, who was the sister that was closest to Ted. And uh, he was he was overseas when Chappaquiddick happened, but when he came back, he went to the um, Hyannisport uh, compound, and he talked to Jean um, about what, and he talked to Steve Smith, her husband, and he talked to Teddy about what had happened at, at Chappaquiddick. And um, writers and uh, reporters have all along suggested and suspected that Kennedy's behavior in the hours after the accident, in which he drove a car off a, a bridge into the water and um, which took the life of Mary Jo Kopechny, um, that his behavior in those hours was designed to be um, to trigger a cover-up. And in fact, now for the first time there in Schlesinger's diary is a concession by um, Ted Kennedy that his, his initial reaction was to try to cover it up, to get back to Edgartown um, on Martha's Vineyard by swimming across the harbor and then to show up in his ostentatiously uh, in the lobby of his hotel to ask what time it was so as to establish um, an alibi. And before he plunges into the water, he tells his aides back on Chappaquiddick, um, do nothing and say nothing until you, you, you hear from me. Um, so for the first time, we actually have an admission from Kennedy that his initial reaction was to, to try to cover it up. Of course, it was a, an aborted attempt. There was no way that um, anybody else could have confessed to driving the car. Um, or to think that somehow they would, um, after after everybody at this party, this cookout had seen Ted and Mary Jo leave together, that that somehow they would explain away the fact that uh, Ted wasn't in the car and she drove the car off the bridge. It was just a bad uh, scheme from the start. But you know, he had he had almost died. He had uh, suffered a concussion. He was in this sort of um, Fear, uh, state of fear and panic and magical thinking, hoping that somehow if, if he'd gotten out of the car, maybe she did too. Um, and so he made a, an awful situation um, worse. And in the book, I call, the, I call his behavior craven, and, and, uh, and it was. Was it one-off? I mean, obviously, he didn't have any other car crashes or, 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 or deaths of young women. But were there other moments, anecdotes in his life that reveal a much darker dead Kennedy? Um, I think that 
one thing that he revealed in his memoirs was that before he and Mary Jo left the party, they had been, um, Mary Jo was the secretary for Robert Kennedy, and they had been talking about Robert and memories of Robert, and he had, both of them had become overwhelmed by a, a feeling of emotion. She had had several drinks. She was beyond the, the legal limit. And you could easily see that, you could easily speculate that, you know, they were going off um, to, uh, to walk the beach together and um, to talk to each other and whether there was romance in the air or not, we'll, we'll never know. Um, because the same thing happens again uh, in, uh, in Palm Beach uh, in the 1990s, early 1990s, when he's sitting on his patio and he's talking with, um, again, with his sister Jean, and they're talking about Robert and uh, the, uh, the night um, goes on and that uh, everybody else goes to bed, but he can't sleep. And so he wakes up his nephew and his, and his son and they go out at midnight to go uh, drinking in, in Palm Beach. The two boys bring uh, women back to the uh, Palm Beach compound, and uh, one of the women claims that uh, the nephew, William Kennedy Smith, uh, raped her during the night. And so you have this second huge um, uh, scandal, uh, and uh, it happens in the same summer that uh, Clarence Thomas is nominated for the Supreme Court. Three or four years after Ted Kennedy had successfully led the opposition and kept Robert Bork off the court, now there's another arch conservative being uh, named to the court and uh, Thomas is accused by Anita Hill of sexual harassment. And uh, Kennedy's performance is totally compromised by the fact that he's got this Palm Beach scandal hanging um, over his head. And, and during the hearings, he might as well have had a, a brown paper bag over his head. And I've had the, um, the, the scholars and, and reporters who wrote the two classic books on the Thomas Hill hearings tell me that if if the Ted Kennedy of Robert Bork had showed up that summer, um, Clarence Thomas would not be on the Supreme Court uh, today. And so that's the key thing about why you want to talk about Ted Kennedy's personal flaws is that um, they limited his effectiveness. They cost him sometimes and they cost the rest of us um, when they would lap over into the public arena. One of the interesting things you've said today, uh, John, or you suggested, it seems, is that Ted Kennedy was a great man the further away he was from the presidency. What kind of president do you think he would have made? We've done many shows on how to pick an American president with uh, political scientists like Gautam Mukunda. Um, could he have made a decent president or would he have shriveled uh, given his psychological issues associated with his family and particularly his brother's? I think that he would have been um, a more than capable president. I don't think that anybody is ever going to bring back Camelot. Um, and Camelot wasn't and Camelot Camelot anyway, was it? <laughs> and Camelot wasn't so hot at the time. It was the myth of Camelot. Um, but uh, um, he certainly had the ability to attract brilliant people to work with him. He certainly had a good heart. He certainly had this this lifelong goal um, to make uh, what he called to make gentler the human condition. Um, and uh, he certainly was in the right place um, to be president at a time when American was uh, gradually becoming uh, um, a more, more uh, a more multicultural place and where uh, 
women and gay Americans and uh, uh, African Americans were all um, playing a bigger role. He would have been a good good president for that. I, I suspect that he would have fought and gotten with that that would, within the structures of the job, which would have prevented things like Chappaquiddick and, and Palm Beach, um, that he would have gotten away from um, uh, the, the self-destructive uh, behavior because he would have to perform. He was he was very good at rehearsing um, and performing, and and so in the presidency he would have been um, within within a, a structure that wasn't there um, for the Senate. There is, a, there is a chance that, uh, that, I mean, if you look what happened to Bill Clinton, um, there is a chance that, uh, that, that, that there, I don't know what is it that you said he could have melted in the office. Um, uh, but uh, all in all, I think. All in all, I think he would have been, I think he could have been a good president. I couldn't say that he would have. He wouldn't have been a great president. No. Uh, I mean, the history uh, well, wasn't uh, right. Do you think? I mean, there had. I mean, Obama perhaps arguably was a great president, but perhaps in some ways more symbolically than in terms of his achievements. Clinton certainly well, it's, one of those, it's one of those great alternative history questions. Ted Kennedy liked to play with alternative history. And he said once that, uh, uh, that, that uh, Jimmy Carter beat Gerald Ford by a very slim margin of maybe 35,000 votes over five, five electoral, important electoral college states. And if the election had gone the other way, if the Ford surge had continued in 1976, um, then all the economic woes that landed on the, the Carter administration uh, would instead have landed on Gerald Ford. And you never would have had um, a Ronald Reagan. You probably would have had a Democrat getting um, elected in, in uh, 1980. And you'd have had a, liberal, a new liberal era rather than a conservative era. So um, yeah, I, um, alternative history. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, history. maybe for another conversation, maybe for another book, John. Uh, you, I, I saw you on uh, MSNBC on the um, Lawrence O'Donnell show talking about yeah, I mean, he's clearly a wise man, especially politically. What Ted Kennedy would do today in terms of the upcoming elections and dealing with the Republican Party? What advice, if he was around today, do you think he could bring to Democrats struggling, it would seem, to hang on to power? Um, that we don't need two, two Republican parties, that you need to em embrace the basic issues that, America, that Democrats have been for, Social Security, Medicare, um, the minimum wage, um, uh, places where the government doesn't do things for senators and presidents and representatives, um, make the election about the voters, not about you. Find out what uh, the voters want from their elected officials and, uh, and bring to them and you will find more often than not, that what the Democratic Party, what liberalism wants to supply, is in fact what um, the voters want. And I don't, I don't see that in this election, which are a week away from at this point, um, with the exception of perhaps the uh, issue of, of abortion. And uh, I wrote that story from the New York Times about um, Alito and, and abortion, and I'm stunned by the online response. I, I think that on, a, on election day, we're going to see um, the women's vote, um, uh, a titanic women's vote. And, uh, and you don't agree with Bernie Sanders that the Democrats might be overplaying the abortion card? I don't know. I can't say whether they've played it enough or not, because, but all I'm going to 
to say is that this issue is huge out there. And maybe what Bernie is saying is that, you know, you didn't need to play the abortion card because Alito did it for you back in July. And now it's time to talk about something else as well. Well, it's a fabulous conversation about a remarkable man, Ted Kennedy alive. John, how long did it take you to write this book? I know you've written, I mean, you're, you're a guy who doesn't, who has a great deal of patience. You've written a few books, one on Tip O'Neill, one on Richard Nixon, one on Clarence Darrow, all prize winners, all requiring major scholarship and time. You, you've got to be a very patient man. Uh, well, I'm sort of like a cicada, you know, I come out every uh, six years with a book and then I go back into my little, my little hole in the ground and, and, and dig away some more. And what was it like being in Ted Kennedy's head or trying to get into its head? Uh, how long did it take? Five, six, seven years? It, 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 all these books take about five or six years, six years. This one was, was especially complicated. I call it my problem child because of uh, COVID, which closed all the uh, archives. Yeah. Um, it, I was both helped and hurt by the fact that um, I had known him. I had to, I had to like relearn what I thought about him when I had a very casual acquaintance with him back in the, in the 1990s. Um, uh, he could be a very um, um, seductive guy with that uh, Irish American cop. As you'd expect. I mean, that's well, yeah, given, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I didn't mind, I, uh, it, and it was painful. I mean, um, to, to, to go through it and see um, the internal Ted Kennedy was it, was, it was, it was, take anybody who had gone through all those tragedies, all those torments in it his was, life. So what, what most surprised you at the end? That his inner life was so tormented because he had a good way of, of, um, saying, no, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to do this, the job, the job, the job, or, Hey, this is great. Let's sing a song together to disguise what was obviously, um, uh, a really painful, uh, internal life. Well, the inner Kennedy and the outer Kennedy were very different, which is why, uh, John A. Farrell's new book, Ted Kennedy, a life is so important A remarkable achievement, six or seven years worth of work. Uh, I think it's going to win a lot of prizes. Congratulations, John, on that. And good luck with all your public speaking at the Kennedy Library today. What else would you suggest to our listeners and viewers to, to read? What else are you reading these days? I just read a great book by a, uh, a fellow named uh, Alan Taylor. He's a professor um, at the uh, University of Virginia. And it was sort of prompted by the great debate we're having now over the 1619 project and what was the motivation mm -hmm. of the of the founder fathers, and uh, it centers very much on um, the pioneering impulse and the greed for land um, uh, uh, as a, uh, a driving factor for um, all the uh, the revolutionaries at that time, particularly those on the on the western frontier. Um, I think I wrote down the name. Anticipating this question. Yes. Uh, American Revolutions, um, a Continental History. And uh, also in that vein, I read a great book about the Battle of Saratoga called The Complete Victory Saratoga and the American Revolution by a guy named Kevin Weddle. Um, uh, again, a, a, a crucial turning point in the revolution, um, Battle of Saratoga, and, and Weddle really does a fantastic job. So if, if you're into either theoretical discussions about the causes of the revolution or uh, military history, those are two very good books. Excellent. Well,